Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of May It Displease the Court, a podcast where we examine the legal system um, and just all of the many of the ways that it manages to rubber stamp some of the worst behaviors possible in society. And today we are looking specifically at racial bias. Uh, Racial bias was always going to be a topic of conversation for this podcast, but obviously the second wave of Black Lives Matter from the summer has brought that, thank God, onto the pub, on the court of public opinion, because it's not on the docket of the courts of not public opinion. And, you know, I'm really grateful to Black Lives Matter. It came out of something that was horrific on both ends. First, the acquittal of um, George Zimmerman, who murdered Trayvon Martin and then was let off. That was, you know, kind of like part one. And then the murder of George Floyd, which, you know, in terms of bookends, George Floyd's officers have been arrested. It doesn't make it better that black life seems to matter less to the courts than white life, especially poor black life. Uh, But the fact that the cops were, at least to some degree, not treated as entirely without fault, I think has been encouraging. And I'm excited more to look at um, not just the kinds of big ticket attention that Black Lives Matter is able to, to raise awareness about, you know, George Floyd's murder, some of the other egregious, the shooting of Breonna Taylor, um, because of the no-knock warrants, things like that, but also just all of the many, many small ways that the courts perpetuate racial bias, which we could not know unless it were for our very own insider, tell it like it is, expose advocate, appellate advocate, Mary Whiteside. And today we're joined also by Eric Teifke. And so I will turn it over to Mary because she knows all the law stuff and let her introduce herself and our guest today. Hi, everybody. It's Mary again. And I'm really excited to kind of bring this conversation to the pod. It's been very inspiring to see, you know, about 10% of the population all over the country from cities to rural villages engage in Black Lives Matter protests. These protests are ongoing, even if they're not getting the same amount of media coverage. But I know that a lot of people are wondering, you know, what kind of effect are these street protests actually going to have? Are they going to be able to change society? Will they be able to defund the police or make improvements to people's lives that will really matter? And I think that part of that answer is going to be that these protests change the conversation and they change people's expectations about what should be tolerated and what should be changed. Joining us today for this discussion is Eric Teifke. He is the second assistant public defender in Monroe County. Uh, We worked together uh, years ago. He handles violent felony and major drug cases. In addition to being one of the best trial attorneys you will ever see, he is also an educator. He regularly trains attorneys as part of their continuing legal education. He's a former director of Syracuse University School of Law's Criminal Defense Clinic and is currently a professor of practice at the law school. Now, judges are generally allergic to defense arguments, but Eric makes everything sound reasonable. So, you know, when you leave a training, you think that you too can persuade a judge to make a favorable ruling for your client. And I have no idea if this is true or an urban legend, but as a young attorney, I was told that Eric had gotten a not guilty verdict on a first degree assault case by arguing that the defendant acted in self-defense when the victim had been stabbed in the back. 
But perhaps Eric's most important achievement occurred when he decided to bring his dog to work, which resulted in the office becoming pet friendly, um, which was a giant improvement. Welcome, Eric. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I think the latter is my most important legacy. Yes, Jack is very proud. Okay, so we're going to focus on the legal system. Um, do you think that the legal system does a good job at acknowledging racial bias and taking steps to address it? No, I don't. <laughs> That's a very emphatic no. Uh, racial bias, uh, the system is riddled with racial bias. Uh, it is infected with it from arrest until the conclusion of the criminal case. Uh, the reason that I'm starting to feel slightly encouraged after 25 years of banging my head against a wall is what you mentioned, the recent attention and what appears to be sustained, strong attention to the need for reforms in that area. There's has not been in my career the, a sustained effort, a vocal effort, a very effective effort to reach into the criminal justice system and make changes. There's been like little band-aids applied here and there that have really not resulted in any fundamental changes, but uh, I'm encouraged here. Uh, this seems to be a moment where real change can take place. One of the problems that I see with addressing race, racism in the courts is that at least where, you know, we have practiced the majority of time, I don't, I don't know that we see the same kind of overt racism, not that it never happens, but I think the majority of the issues of racial um, disparity occur from implicit bias that you know, the people that we encounter, the judges, the district attorneys, the police, they, they don't want to address and frankly haven't been made to address before now. And so I think, you know, I see this as maybe a time where we could make some inroads in that. What do you think? Yes, I think the explicit racial bias is, is at least where I practice, you know, in upstate New York, you don't see it very much. Uh, you'll see it if you do a lot of research. Uh, there's a lot of uh, really shocking appeals to race by prosecutors and very little done about it by judges in a lot of predictably, you know, redder states. And you'll see a lot of litigation, a lot of appellate decisions around that. But when I've been practicing, I have to honestly say it's not explicit, it's not overt that the prosecutors and judges that may have biases are smart enough to conceal them, but it's the implicit biases that are more insidious and that are the bigger concern. Those are the biases that we, and I'll include pretty much everybody in, in that group, you know, there are any biases that are operating on us and we don't feel that they're operating on us, but we have to assume that they are present. And I think that even defense attorneys need to engage in, you know, put the time in to understand that given the environment where they grew up, you know, being raised in the United States right now or ever, we've been trained, all the information coming into our heads. Um, we may not feel biased, but it's very likely to be there. It's almost like growing up near a nuclear power plant in a mm -hmm. household where both your parents smoke 
you know, eating red meat every day, never wearing sunscreen. Sure, you may not feel you have cancer. There's no tumor growing on your face. But given that environment that you've been living in, it is very likely that there are cancer cells moving around your body and perhaps having some metabolic effect. And that's kind of how implicit bias is. Even well-intentioned judges and well-intentioned prosecutors could be influenced by biases they don't know they have. And it's very hard to get people to consider that there are forces operating on them that they're not cognizant of. And that is the job, unfortunately, because no one else is going to do it in the criminal justice system. It falls to the defense attorney. And it's very difficult to bring that conversation up. Prosecutors and judges don't want to even consider the possibility that their work, the decisions they make, are influenced by implicit racial bias. I just want to uh, interject that uh, this is the time of COVID. We are all working from home and I can hear my baby crying. So you may be able to hear my baby crying and uh, he will likely soon be going for a walk. But uh, I wanted to apologize for that. Um, Is there a way that we can use data and research to uh, try to uh, educate the court? on racial bias and in a way that they'll actually pay attention to? Well, if ever there was a time, and there's no shortage of social science. Now, social science is a little softer science than, you know, chemistry or physics, but it is a science. And there are a lot, there is a lot of um, social science data available. Uh, If you just do a casual internet search, you're going to be just inundated with social science evidence of things around race that you may have assumed that may be intuitive or may be counterintuitive. It is fascinating stuff. So the evidence is out there. And we can't rely upon judges and prosecutors and police officers to go find this. They simply don't share our incentives, right? Implicit racial bias is something that police officers are not they don't have an interest in curbing implicit racial bias. I mean, it's, it's kind of in this moment being forced on them. They, they weren't incentivized to do it until they're being threatened with their very existence. Prosecutors' offices don't have much incentive to, to combat implicit racial bias because it contributes to the outcomes that they want. They want convictions, convictions and stiff sentences, and implicit racial bias contributes to both of those goals. And judges are supposed to be neutral, but most of them emerge from a prosecutorial background. And they're not terribly uncomfortable with convictions, and they're certainly not terribly uncomfortable with harsh sentences. So we're the only ones, and of course our clients, that have the incentive to understand this. And it unfortunately is going to fall to us on top of all the other responsibilities we have. But I think to be a zealous advocate, we do need to expand what it means. Um, And we need to now include efforts every step of the way in the criminal case to counter racial bias. And the social science evidence is there. Um, You need to read it, not just cut and paste a website into a motion, but you need to understand what it is that you are attaching to your motion, what it is you're pitching to the court, what the support is, what it means, you know, make sure it's, it's a fair characterization of the state of the science. And judges have always been comfortable saying, no, I don't want to try something new. 
prosecutors don't want to listen to any innovative strategies to resolve cases. Judges don't want to listen to anything that isn't, uh, you know, right out of the book. They don't want to evolve in the direction of perhaps making things fairer. They always feel it's safer. It's terms of appellate review of their decisions that they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. So get them to step out of their comfort zone, which is not a friendly place for a criminal defendant, is going to take more than evidence. It's going to take the evidence plus the pressure that comes with the need to change and appear fair. And in this in this day and age, you know, given the attention being paid to racial bias, I think judges are feeling a little bit of the heat. I think a motion based around an effort to eliminate racial bias from a trial by quizzing a jury about the issue, by allowing juror questionnaires that probe for racial bias, by allowing the defense to introduce experts or cross-examine witnesses about racial bias, allowing defense to introduce it where it is appropriate in the appropriate case is now going to be the the politically perhaps a little safer thing to do. So do you want to be the judge in this day and age coming up for election who denied a defense request to quiz a jury about their knowledge of implicit racial bias, let's say 85% of the time? Right now, the evidence that was always available is probably going to prove more persuasive. And I sadly, I don't think it's because judges are any more interested in doing the right thing but they are always going to be interested in doing the politically expedient thing. The politically expedient thing has always in the past been to do what the prosecutor wants, you know, to allow evidence that may or may not been lawful, may or may not lawfully have been obtained into the person's trial to set high bails, to issue harsh sentences. This is what judges think is going to get them reelected. It's what they think the public wants. Judges almost always reflexively default when they run for election to some variety of tough on crime. That seems to be the platform they think is going to get them reelected. And I think that's that's accurate. But now in this political environment, I don't know that a law and order tough on crime platform slogan, you know, ethic is going to be something that is as big an asset to a judge as it has been in the past. So I think it's incumbent upon the defense community not only to make these efforts, to present the evidence and hope that the pressure of the moment you know, persuades a judge to do the right thing, but also to keep statistics of how often judges say yes and how often they say no, um, because those statistics can prove persuasive to potential voters next time around. Judges need to know they're being watched. I don't think doing the right thing is at the top of their list of priorities. Getting reelected, I've always maintained, is at the top of their list of priorities. And they're going to do what it takes to get reelected. And right now, for the first time in my career, what may get them reelected is being racially sensitive. You know, and a lot of times we have areas uh, where prosecutors are also the the district attorney, not individual line prosecutors, but the district attorney is elected. And so, you know, we have instances where progressive prosecutors are being, you know, elected around the country, like um, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and Chase Boudin in in San Francisco. Um, And some of them are coming from the defense bar, you know, and and prosecutors have an unbelievable amount of power. Um, You know, how do you what do you think of that as far as an area of reform? 
I, it's just wonderful to see that. I, I've always been concerned about how it is people enter in to a prosecutor's office. And I've always been troubled by the, the way the current pipeline is. You go to law school, you come out of law school at like you know 25 years of age, and you immediately go into a prosecutor's office. You've never entered into the real world. You've never represented a client. And next thing you know, you're given a badge, a ton of authority, and then you're given incredible decision-making power over the lives of so many people. Uh, most people would prefer not to go to trial, and they prefer to work a case out. And it's the prosecutor who usually dictates how a case is going to end up because there's a lot of pressure not to go to trial. You know, a lot of people don't like the stress of doing that. So they're looking to accept an offer. And a reasonable prosecutor is going to make an offer that is fair. And one that isn't is going to try to cram, you know, harsh offers down the throats of, of defendants. So prosecutors have incredible power, uh, a decent, reasonable, progressive, forward thinking, you know, Racially sensitive prosecutor can be a tremendous asset to that community because convictions devastate communities. Incarceration devastates communities. Having people supervised by parole officers and probation officers devastates communities. This is not good. You know, when the system has to convict a person and send them three hours away to sit in a cage for 10 years, that is a tremendous failure of that system. It shouldn't be looked at as a success. That should be looked at as a, it's a shame it came to this. And we've historically always blamed it on the individual when really we should be looking at the system and the system's contribution to the how the individual got to that moment and then how they handled the case from that point forward. And a progressive prosecutor, uh, a truly progressive prosecutor, um, I, yeah, I'm not, not people that pitch themselves as progressive prosecutors like Kamala Harris, but a legitimate progressive prosecutor like Krasner in Philadelphia is a tremendous asset to the community. I, I, I am extremely pleased when I do see a legitimate progressive have that type of authority. Now, you know, prosecutors, you know, we <clears throat> talked about this a little bit. They have enormous power in how a case is charged, in what type of plea bargain is offered, and in what sentence uh, somebody could get. And most, the vast majority of criminal cases are resolved by plea bargaining. So how would you counteract uh, a prosecutor's implicit bias, you know, in, in a in a process like that, where they, you know, they're the ones who are holding almost all the cards. Well, and a lot of this is aspirational, but a lot of things that are, you know, currently good were at once just dreams. So it, we shouldn't think that because something hasn't been done before, that it hasn't been done yet, that it will never happen. One of the things that would eliminate the possibility that a prosecutor's implicit bias will affect a defendant's case is if the prosecutor is blinded, for instance, if they are not made aware of the race of the person that um, when the file lands on their desk, if the information about race or from which they could, could infer the race of the, of the accused is somehow choked off or kept at the police department. Now, you're never going to be able to blind the police to the race of the person they arrested because, well, they arrested them, right? But the prosecutor's office gets information from the police. Uh, I think a, a truly fair system would involve some 
scrubbing of the information before it gets to a prosecutor. You don't need a booking photo. Do you really even need a name? Do you need a lot of this information that could trigger implicit biases? And if I was a prosecutor or a judge and you withheld information from me about the race of the person, I would be relieved because I would say, okay, well, it kind of inoculates me from any claim that my explicit or implicit bias is affecting the decisions I'm making. So blinding prosecutors, now this is going to be tough to do. It would require the cooperation of the police department and it required the prosecutors to buy in. But if pressure is put on them, and this is a reform that's pitched and pitched very strongly, then perhaps someday, somewhere, maybe Philadelphia, for instance, this is something that that could be done. Training, I don't think training is as effective as you think it is, but it is certainly a step in the right direction. One thing we do know about implicit racial bias and that the evidence appears to bear out is that when it is brought to your attention that you may be affected by implicit racial bias, people tend, at least temporarily, to be on guard for it. They tend to be a little more cognizant of the possibility that they're being unfair And for instance, if you raise it with jurors at the outset of a trial, that awareness could last the duration of the trial and to the to the defendant's benefit in the sense that the defendant might get the impartial jury that uh, he or she is entitled to. So in terms of what other reforms um, to combat prosecutorial racial bias, you could have a prosecutor if you don't choke off the information about the race of the accused as it enters the prosecutor's office, it certainly could be choked off from the assigned prosecutor. So the DA's office themselves knows, but they give it to the assistant and they tell the assistant, do what you want with this case. And the assistant is not told by their own office the race of the person. Now, one problem here is that eventually they're going to appear in court with the accused. And they're at that point going to know but some of the most important decisions about a case, first of all, whether or not to pursue the charge that the police believe was committed, uh, how strong to pursue the charge that the police believe was committed, uh, whether or not to make an offer and what that offer would be. These are decisions that are very often made before the assigned prosecutor appears in court with the defendant and the defendant's attorney. So that would be an internal way that a prosecutor's office could try to combat the implicit racial bias of the particular prosecutor assigned to the case. Now, you're going to also, though, have the historic effects of race on a lot of people because of the criminal records that they have. Um, you know, it, this isn't something, you know, we, we're, we're talking about a problem that's existed probably the entirety of the criminal uh, justice system in this country. So someone's criminal history is going to have that, you know, built into it, you know. So how do we get, you know, judges or prosecutors to rethink looking at criminal histories? Because, you know, from my perspective, you know, if somebody had a lengthy criminal history, that, you know, that, that would really kind of close down um the options for plea bargains and sentencings. You know, it was like, well, they've been, they've gotten chances before. Now we're going to punish them hard, more harshly. Well, I think we need to think about, I mean, one thing that concerns me as a defense attorney, and one thing my client, I mean, I wish they didn't have to worry about this, but the fact is, as things stand now, they do. And that is that 
if the case proceeds to trial, the prosecutor's office is going to attempt to prove that you committed the charged crime. So one of the things that a defendant has to be concerned about is that when they go to trial, they're going to be arguing to a jury, I didn't commit this offense, or there's insufficient evidence of that. Prosecutor is going to be trying to prove that the person did commit the offense, and the jury's got to decide whether or not there's enough evidence they committed the offense, right? It's a difficult call. You know, a jury's got a lot of responsibility there. They're looking over. They're seeing, okay, this person sitting over there is alleged to have done this. This is what we heard. This is how much evidence we need to convict. If we don't have it, then we can't convict. And they're supposed to think about the case. That's the way a trial should go. But what happens is if the person has a prior criminal record, there is a struggle that goes on in that trial before the trial and even during the trial about does the judge let the jury learn that there's been prior convictions by the defendant. Now, obviously, the defendant has a tremendous incentive to keep the jury from learning about those convictions because people tend to think if you committed a previous crime, you're more likely to commit this crime. And it affects, understandably, their decision. It's just human nature. Prosecutors always want to, to poison the jury against the defendant by showing the defendant's a bad person, therefore they're more likely to have done this charge, which is not a permissible argument to make, but it's a natural inference a jury would draw. And the defense is always very concerned about that. And judges get to be the gatekeepers. The prosecutor might say, this person's got three prior convictions. I want to tell the jury about those three prior convictions during the trial of this charge. And the defense says that shouldn't happen. And there's an argument about whether or not the jury is going to learn about one, two, or three, and how much of one or two or three. And the judge decides they'll learn about two and three, but not one. Or they'll learn about all, or they'll learn about none. And that decision is extremely important because a defendant who knows that the jury's not going to learn about prior convictions is more likely to go to trial figuring a jury's going to give them a fair shake. A defendant who is told by a judge, if you go to trial, I'm going to let them unload all your prior bad acts in front of that jury. So if you want to take your chances, you can go ahead, but you need to understand. Now, that is an extraordinarily coercive measure. And a lot of judges and prosecutors, prosecutors try to use it. Judges let them use it. And a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times it's done to coerce a guilty plea. And that's very scary. So defense attorneys have always tried to keep it out. And there's legal arguments you can make to try to keep it out. Prosecutors always try to keep it in. And of course, they have some legal arguments to support their position. But I think we need to back this thing up. Right? We need to back it up and say, okay, this person has three prior convictions, but can we trust that those convictions mean anything? If we're going to acknowledge, and defense attorneys are ready to acknowledge this, but we, if we can get judges to acknowledge that a lot of times convictions aren't the way they look on paper, that the fact a person has a conviction that isn't, doesn't necessarily mean that they did it, or that the circumstances of the arrest, prosecution, conviction were such that you can have confidence that allowing it into this trial will have the, the, the value that the court thinks it has. You know, the way I always explain it to people is, you know, you got rich white men making the laws, right? They criminalize things 
that other people do, not the stuff that they do. Then you have white police officers deciding where they're going to park their squad cars, what neighborhoods they're going to patrol, who they're going to get out and stop, who they're going to arrest. And then you have white prosecutors deciding whether or not to pursue a charge, how strongly to pursue a charge, whether or not to make an offer and what the offer is. And then you have white judges making the decisions that affect, you know, whether or not they're going to endorse a plea deal or they're going to allow evidence into a trial or they're going to give you a racial bias jury instruction or not. This is the way the system works. And you have bail laws and the bail laws contribute to pleas of guilty by innocent people all the time. Thousands of people every year are arrested and put in jail and then they're told, hey, if you say you're guilty for what we arrested you for, we'll open this door. We'll open up the door. You'll go home. Now, I don't know who wouldn't say okay to that. If you ever even walk through a jail, you can understand the tremendous incentive. You basically, you're, so you're telling me that if I just let a couple words out of my face, I get out of this cage? Who wouldn't make that, that decision, right? But it sounds great. And of course, most anyone would do it. But now for the rest of your life, you're going to be a convicted criminal. So given all of those circumstances, Seeing that this person on paper three years ago was convicted of a crime may not be worth, you know, what is that really worth? If you can't trust the system that generated the conviction, then why should the system be allowed to double dip, not only securing the conviction, but then battering the person with it for the rest of their lives? So is that argument kind of most effective with uh, with the judge, uh, you know, in like a pretrial or like a pretrial motion or, you know, motion argument during the trial? Or do you think that's an argument that you would make really to the jury? Well, if you're making it to a jury, that means the judge has already let the conviction in. Well, true. If a yeah. judge says... I guess right, I'm assuming so judge, that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if a judge says, if your client goes to trial, I'm going to let the prosecutor tell about their prior convictions... And your client elects to go to trial, and then the jury learns about the prior convictions, and now they go into the jury room not only to decide whether or not the person committed the crime, knowing that the person has committed previous crimes. Now, the judge is going to give a jury instruction saying that you can't assume that because the person committed previous crimes that they're more likely to have committed this crime. The judge gives that jury instruction to the jury as a safeguard against them assuming did it before, did it again. But those instructions are pretty much worthless. <laughs> and I think the evidence shows they're just not effective, that almost any human being is not going to be able to take that out of their thinking when they decide, especially in a close call case, whether a person is responsible for the charged offense. So, you know, if you're going to argue to keep it out, you're going to throw all of you know throw everything you can at the judge. Give every justification. Defense attorneys have always given justifications. Like judge, why would you let them learn about a 20 year old conviction? It's too remote in time. That's one argument you would make to try to convince a judge to keep a prior conviction out. Other convictions may be too like on the surface of them, they might be too shocking. They might be so prejudicial 
uh, the title of it may be so prejudicial, like endangering the welfare of a child or contributing to the blah, blah, blah of a minor. You know, the, the facts could be you bought some kid a beer when they were 15, but this title looks awful. So you might argue that that is just too prejudicial a conviction or whatever your arguments might be. And the prosecutors, of course, can argue against that. But if a judge decides to let it in, then do you address it? You know, when the trial's almost over and you're giving your closing argument, you know the jury heard the evidence in the case, and you've got to argue that's not enough. But you also know that they heard some things about your client. Do you bring it up, you know, to, to address it? Or do you figure maybe that'll just make things worse because now they've heard it twice? You know, so you're in a tough spot. You know the jury heard it. You know the judge is going to tell them you can't just assume that they committed this charge because they had prior convictions. Do you let it lie or do you not? That's the defense attorney's call. You know, in a perfect world, in the current environment, I should say, I think we should throw additional efforts into keeping it out using systemic racial bias and the questions surrounding how much value a racially biased criminal justice system should really be putting on prior convictions. Yeah, I think those are great points. All right, let's move back. You know, we we're, we talked a little about the trials. We'll probably come back to that. But I want to come back to an area that, you know, probably the public doesn't think about a lot, but that uh, there's a ton of... Uh, I don't know, cases go off the rails at these uh, this stage, which is uh, the suppression stage, suppression hearings. So, you know, what can happen, you know, before a case gets to trial is the defense attorney can say, you know, we don't think that certain evidence should come into trial, should be considered because it was uh, obtained in violation of my client's constitutional rights. So we should suppress that evidence. So we make suppression motions and the judges have hold hearings before we ever get to trial. And these are some of the areas where, you know, judges, I think, really, really fail defense uh, defendants uh, and don't do the work necessary to actually consider whether they should be letting this this uh, evidence in or not, and it's it's a lot of rubber, a lot of rubber stamping, a lot of kind of just pushing it through, especially when we have uh, police witnesses, which often is what you're dealing with is police witnesses at these hearings. Is, what is that your experience, Eric? Yeah, it, it definitely is. These decisions that judges make are are often determinative because. If a client of mine is walking down the street and the police officer walks up to that client and says, hey, what's in your backpack, right? No reason to suspect my client engaged in any, any violations of the law. My client's not wanted for anything. There's been no report of a crime with my client matching the description, nothing. And the police officer goes up and says, what's in the backpack? And my client says, sure, you can look in there. And the police officer looks in there and finds a controlled substance. All right, well, that's illegal police conduct. You can't, for no reason, ask somebody, even ask them for their consent. So the consent the officer got um, is not, you know, whether or not you give consent, they had no right to ask for the consent. So the product of the search that resulted from the consent should be suppressed. So you have a situation there where a judge now gets this case, right? They charge the person with possession of a controlled substance. Could be a misdemeanor, could be a felony. Judge gets the case. 
defendant knows, defense attorney knows, prosecutor knows, and the judge knows that there was a controlled substance found in the defendant's backpack. The lab report comes back. It's controlled substance. No one's disputing that it was in the backpack. A judge knows the defendant was responsible for that crime. The prosecutor knows. Everybody knows the defendant's responsible for the crime. But the pesky U.S. Constitution says you can try the person, but you can't try them with the evidence. Because if we allow you to try them with the evidence, then we're pretty much condoning the police behavior. And if we condone the police behavior, that behavior is never going to stop. And we don't in this country want our citizens stopped, searched, and questioned without sufficient reason. So the judge has got to think about lofty constitutional principles. But what's tugging them in the other direction is... I know the person did it. So the judge is torn. Now, they shouldn't be torn. It should be an easy call. But they're still torn because they know that the person did it, and they don't want it to result in a pass, a free pass for the person. The bigger problem here is when a police officer starts, you know, kind of adding facts (laughs) I have, you know, I have cheap. a case. I have, a, I have a case. Everything is similar to what to the hypothetical that you were saying, but you know the 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 police officer just completely lied, and it, so you know it was a but it wasn't a stop on the street. It was a stop. It was a car stop, and the car was a Pontiac Aztec, and you know the cop says, "Well, I came up from behind." And I saw, you know, the defendant make furtive motions and reached for the glove compartment. And so for officer safety, this he was the passenger. So for officer safety, you know, I pulled him out and did a search of the of the glove compartment. Lo and behold, find drugs, charge, you know, and, and charge the actually charge the passenger and not the driver because the passenger was black and the uh, driver was a white teacher. And what was what killed me in this hearing is is this you know Pontiac Aztec is a is a big tall car and it's an older car but at the time it wasn't an old car and it has uh, so it's pretty high off the ground and the windows are tinted so you can't see into them from the back and this cop was five foot nine or if he was five foot nine he was a short guy so there is just no way that this guy approached from the back and saw anything uh, you know above you know the back part of that car. It's just not possible. And all of this was brought out at the hearing. And the judge his judge says, well, and the, well, the DA stood up and said, you know, well, he saw he, the guy make furtive motions and for officer safety. And the judge is like, yes, absolutely. You know, it's these buzzwords. And Ugh. there was just no consideration of the facts that this was just, this is physically impossible. And it was so frustrating because I had thought that this was going to be an easy suppression. You know, obviously, you know, the stop also, there was no reason for the stop. None of this mattered. It was just like, okay, dupe, that's it. No, you know, suppress, motion denied. And, and I knew that the cop was testifying. I knew that he was doing it. I tried to bring out the facts, but, you know, to no avail. There was, there was none. Uh, it just didn't matter. And I think that that's extremely frustrating, you know, when you know that a, that a police officer is lying on the stand. Um, it, yeah, but- it's, it's, it's extremely common, too. It, it's, 
it, it's so common. Police officers do what they do, and then they they have enough sense, right? They're not lawyers, they're not judges, but they're fairly good at the law, right? Because they arrest people for violating the law. They're trained on the law, but they're not as legally sophisticated as lawyers and judges. But over time, they come to learn what they need to claim, whether it's true or not. If I claim this, then the judge is going to buy it hook, line, and sinker because, after all, I'm a white guy with a badge and I arrested some young black kid. So if they, they know that if they lie, it doesn't really matter because the defendant's going to say, bullshit, and the cop's going to say, just going to tap their badge. And the judge is going to say, well, I believe the officer is credible. And you're never going to win the swearing contest. And and cops know that. Cops take full advantage of the fact that judges are too spineless to ever really genuinely consider that the cop may be lying. They routinely find the cop credible. Cops know that if they want to search a car, all they have to do is say, uh, well, it smelled like marijuana. Could be bullshit. Could be true. But Five months later at a hearing, there's no way to prove whether it was bullshit or true. But the cops know if I just utter those words, the judge is going to bend over backwards. The judge is going to say, well, smell of marijuana. The law says you can search for smell of marijuana. That's all I needed to hear case closed. It could be a complete lie. And judges are the worst lie detectors out there. Matter of fact, what I think, I think sometimes they know they're being lied to. But they know that as long as the cop says that lie, the law is going to support my decision because I have to say I found them credible. And then the law says smell of marijuana gets you a search of the car and my job is done here. So they're almost relieved when the officer remembers to lie because then they get to do what they wanted to do in the first place, which is to not suppress the evidence because they know if they suppress the evidence, the prosecutor loses, the cop loses, and they don't get to sentence anybody on the front page of the paper if it's an important case. So judges are awful at negatively reinforcing police perjury. And that, of course, will get you incessant historical police perjury. It's an epidemic. Police officers, it's just their lying is just rampant. Well, I don't I think, think anybody people, can completely get their mind around how 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 prevalent it is, how reflexive it is. Right. And I think that the public is starting to get some of it because they're seeing with the advent of of cell phone cameras, they're seeing them yes. lie in other contexts, you know, with these with these protesters, you know, the 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 you know, shoving the 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 old man in Buffalo and then they lie and say he tripped and it's, you know, it and people are like, I can't believe they, you know, they lied about this. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, they're, it, they're so used to doing it. It's difficult for them to stop doing it even when they're on camera. Well, lying in a report is a crime. Uh, lying about a material issue, like smell of marijuana under oath at a hearing or a trial is a felony. But who would, who would have to get the, the spine to, to do something about it, Right. The prosecutor is sitting there in court as perjury is taking place, doing nothing because they don't want to lose the case and they don't want to lose the relationship with the police officer and they don't want to get the reputation at the police department as being a soft on crime prosecutor. It's it's pretty disgusting. Prosecutors are never going to prosecute police crimes. They never do it. They only do it when the police absolutely force their hands. Like if it's just like, you know, like a 
police officer executes his girlfriend during a domestic dispute in the Walmart parking lot, then maybe a prosecutor is forced to maybe charge involuntary manslaughter and offer probation. That's about all they'll ever do. And judges, of course, don't sentence cops when they are convicted to anything other than the bare minimum. There was a cop just now, I just read about this clown, who was making up DWI arrests. He would file charges with the court. He did it at least six times. This guy on this date was pulled over. He was driving this car. He smelled of alcohol. He refused the breathalyzer. I charged him with these offenses. Then, of course, on the court date, no one shows up. This happened six times. So the police department goes out to find this person to execute the warrant to drag them to court. And they eventually found out that there was never a stop. There was never a driver. There was never anything. The police officer completely made up the entire thing. So this guy committed felony after felony after felony after felony. And yes, he was finally arrested and he got probation. Well, I think, you know, that kind of that type of police misconduct, you know, that's one area. But, uh, you know, another area that I saw a lot is, uh, you know, the, the physical misconduct, you know, the, the you know, beating up of of suspects and, you know, and defendants, you, you know, when you do arraignment, you just see, you just see them come in, especially in the summer, you know, they would be coming and they're all black eyes and, and, you know, and they'd be trying to tell, they'd be trying to tell me, you know, what happened and may want to, you know, they want, they want to see, you know, they want to file a civil suit and, and, you know, I, I definitely did this, you know, where I'm just like, I can't help you. I can't help you with that. I, there's no vehicle for me in this case to help you for the, the police misconduct that clearly occurred. Um, although they would say, you know, and then usually there was like, it started off maybe as like a violation, like a disorderly conduct. But by the time, you know, if, if they're beat up, there's definitely going to be at least a misdemeanor, if not a felony charged in that, um, in those series of charges, you know, the police is, are definitely going to say that they came at them. And so all of this was, all of this force was justified. And I don't know, maybe I was just, I, you know, I have a little guilt over that. You know, maybe I just wasn't, uh, I just didn't know what to do, you know, there, there, cause there, it isn't a situation where the prosecutor was going to care or the court was going to care. I mean, those were the worst cases. If the cops came in and said there was a, you know, physical altercation, they charged those. I mean, typically there was no, the, the DA offered no plea reduction and the case was, you know, headed to trial, you know, for, for us, you know, a very lengthy sentence. So, you know, I, that kind of yeah. haunts me a little bit. Um, just feeling like, oh, I just didn't have, I just didn't have the tools to deal with that as well. As- well, as a, yeah, I mean, when you work at a legal aid or a public defender's office, you're, you're charged with representing someone on their criminal charges. So your obligation is to defend them uh, against the charge, you know, on that charge defense. You're not even empowered to, if you were, if you were inclined to, to pursue a civil action against the police. And it's always very frustrating. Because what happens is, and you know this too, the police engage in misconduct. They use excessive force. They realize, crap, I really pummeled this guy. So what they do is to put that person on the defensive, right? So they transition from perpetrator to victim by claiming that the person 
forced their hand that this force was necessary because of the other person's, because of the the, uh, the defendant's actions. Police officers, def- you know, they charge it to put the other person on the defensive. And now that person is charged, and now that person's in jail, and now that person's claiming excessive force. But the fact they're charged, the fact they're in jail, the, fa- the fact they're probably poor and young and black means that no one's going to believe them in a swearing contest anyway. And to back up to something you said recently, no one ever believed that the police, or rarely, believed that the police were, were beating people and lying about it until the cameras started rolling. The police are no more violent than they've ever been. We just know now what they're up to. The body-worn camera program is very interesting. In Rochester, they started that in about 2016. So you figure, okay, now that the police are wearing cameras showing what they're doing all the time, it's going to improve behavior. And what you see instead is that they keep doing the stupid and unlawful things that they've always done. Because what it shows you is that it's so ingrained, it's so habitual that they can't stop doing it, even when the cameras are rolling. So you'll see, and there's a lot of famous videos on the internet of a cop with his body camera rolling, walking over somewhere with a bag of crack, putting it under a bottle, and then coming back with the camera still rolling as though he just found it. It's it's kind of astonishing that the police are so used to doing and not every cop, and not all the time, but it's a hell of a lot more than a few bad apples. They're doing these things because they've always done these things. And the fact the camera's rolling, you think it would have a chilling effect on that unlawful behavior, but actually you still catch so much misconduct, rules violations, criminal behavior, because it's so routine. It's been ingrained in them and they've been doing it for so long that no matter whether eyes are on them or not, whether they know the camera's rolling or that they get the cameras rolling, they just are doing what they always done. Except now we get to see it. And the public is now starting to get to see it. So now it's much easier to convince a jury, for instance, that a police officer may have used excessive force or that a police officer may have lied or a police officer may have committed a crime because they're not just hearing a random black guy say, oh, well, this happened to me. They're seeing it with their own eyes in their living rooms and not just once in a while. So it's a lot easier now to get a jury thinking about the police not as, you know, these knights in shining armor but as flawed human beings who happen to have that job, they're no more honest than anyone in any other occupation. Well, in order to do that, though, you have to seat a good jury. So you have to try to get at, uh, you have to have a, you know, a jury that will be able to be open to these arguments and that, um, you know, are at least at some level critical thinkers. And, you know, there's a couple problems with getting that. You know, I think you, you've got to bring out people's implicit biases. So that's not something that they're they're cognizant of and they're not aware of it. And then a lot of times when you're trying to seat a jury, you have a lot of things that you have to do. You have to and one of those many things that you have to do is get at these racial issues. But courts set these very strict time limits when you're questioning, at least my experience, and every court runs a little differently, but you know, most of the time I've experienced very short time limits to question jurors. And it's it's like, well, how the heck am I supposed to get to all of these people? You're seating a huge number of people, and I only have so many preemptory challenges to strike someone. And then there's gonna there may be a whole chunk of people that I literally know nothing about because I don't have time to even get a word out of them. So 
those are kind of some challenges that I think a, a, a trial attorney has. Um, do you have any strategies for that? Well, jury selection is very important for the defendant. It's far less important for a prosecutor. I think a prosecutor could probably live with a random draw, right? Because if you don't ask anybody any questions, you probably are going to get a jury full of people who have explicit or implicit racial biases. Probably people that think that the laws aren't strict enough, the sentences aren't long enough. They're going to be, you know, there's going to be people, people's general leanings are generally toward conviction, not towards the possibility that a person is not criminally responsible for something or even innocent. So it's the defense that has to do more work because we need really to uncover who these people are. The prosecutor can probably say, well, whether I find out or not, the odds are this person is going to be pro-prosecution because, well, most people tend to lean that way. Most people tend to have a pro-police bias. Most people tend to have implicit racial bias. And those are two of the prosecutor's best friends in any trial. So as a defense attorney, you've got to try to, you're not going to be able to change a person from a pro-police bias to neutral or anti-cop in the span of the couple minutes or the couple hours or the couple days over the course of a trial. Impossible. And you're not going to be able to reverse implicit racial bias. You're probably not going to be able to get someone to genuinely even appreciate the fact that they have implicit racial bias operating on them. The best you may be able to do is to get them to consider the possibility. You have to talk to them about the importance of a fair trial. You have to talk about, you know, egalitarian principles. You've got to remind them of the the constitutional rights that your client has. You know, fair trial, impartial jury, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. This seems kind of cookie cutter, but the science shows that people are affected by appeals to, to their virtue and their fairness. And they can if they're told if they're told or asked to think about during jury selection, the potential that they could harbor implicit racial bias. If race is brought up, race they will become race conscious and they will carry that race consciousness into the jury room and they'll be more likely to give your client a fair shake. And when it comes to diversity on juries, it's an incredible effect. White people tend to be on their best behavior during a trial when they know at the end of the trial that among the people they'll be deliberating with are people of a different race. White people tend to do much better. They tend to spend more time on the issues. They tend to to, uh, cast a wider net in terms of the amount, the breadth of the information discussed during deliberation goes up with the diversity of the jury. The amount of time discussing the issues goes up with the diversity of the jury. And it's not because, let's say, black jurors are the ones back there insisting that these things come up. What the science shows is that the white people take it upon themselves, knowing that they have to be, you know, that they they are in the presence of, the let's say, the two out of the 12 black jurors. They go the extra mile. They're more likely in a diverse setting to deliberate more fairly. It's really, really fascinating stuff. There's really no shortage of social science evidence that talks to the the value of diversity. So during jury selection, achieving diversity is extremely important. Bringing out the potential impact on the case of racial bias is extremely important. You could ignore it. Prosecutors would prefer you did, 
because there's likely to be racial bias. And unless you mention it, it's not going to be at the center of a juror's thinking. And if you can center it, if you can bring it out and bring it out early, a jury's probably, at least temporarily, which is all you need, going to probably be on their best behavior. They're going to be willing to consider the possibility that implicit racial bias is operating on them. And they're going to take measures to try to be fair and prove that that isn't the case or that they can manage it. It's really interesting stuff. But to time limits, yeah, the time limits are are an absolute joke. Jury selection is not treated as seriously as it should be. The evidence shows that once a jury is picked, they they are already beginning to form and inform decisions in the case. Jury selection is often the end of a trial. You have won or lost a trial fairly often once the jury is seated. Because you can imagine you have an argument to make. That argument might be appealing to this group of 12 people and not appealing to the other group of 12 people. So if no care goes into picking which group of 12 people you're going to make the argument to, then you could end up with the one where you're dead in the water. No matter how magnificently you do during that trial, you were always dead because that jury was just not inclined to be receptive to the arguments that you were going to make. And judges limit voir dire, jury selection, severely. And it's important that we push back. We've always pushed back and said, I want more time, I want more time, I want more time. And good attorneys will explain why they need more time. They'll say, there's complex issues in this case. I, we should devote more time to jury selection. But now we need to put another layer on top of that, and we need to bring out the importance and remind judges, and the time is right, of putting effort into addressing implicit racial bias. And to putting, you can't, your effort without time doesn't much matter. Judges need to appreciate the importance of it, and they need to devote the time to it. Judges sometimes will put 21 people in front of you to sort through, and they'll give you 15 minutes to talk to them. That's 0.7 minutes per person. How can you understand anything, even on a superficial level, about 21 people in 15 minutes, let alone try to uncover potential implicit racial bias? something that people are never going to admit to and are loath to even consider is exists. It's almost impossible. Judges cripple defendants from the start by not allowing them to really meaningfully explore the people that will sit in judgment in that case. The Black Lives Matter, though, as a slogan and as an idea, I do think provides a great shortcut because uh, people have a lot of opinions about it. You know, you see it all over social media. So, you know, I think that, you know, that may be a good shortcut in trying to get people talking because, you know, you're, you're right. You know, a lot of the the work of selecting a jury is to just can you get a hint about how somebody feels um, and, and then, you know, decide, OK, well, is this person ever going to be open to, you know, the issues in in our case? So um, I think that might provide, you know, a good opportunity for that. Um, another issue I think with trials is the way that, you know, the court looks at, um, different witnesses and the signals that it sends, um, the way that it, you know, treats certain witnesses and the way that it treats the defendant and the defense attorney, um, and signaling those issues to the jury. And I think that's something that is also kind of difficult to address, uh, you know, because you're, you're, 
you know, it's, it's, it takes tact. It definitely takes tact for the defense attorney to raise the issue yes. while not like, you know, I don't know, going too far um, and making accusations when it's, you, you might not necessarily want to, you know, I, it's hard to even, it's hard to even articulate, you know, cause that's like such a line that you walk um, in being a good advocate, but also not, not uh, provoking, not poking the bear and getting like their wrath. Um, yeah, I mean, two two points you brought up that are really really excellent. If I'm giving ve- given very limited time, right, and I've spent the last four or five months considering how I can revamp my practice, how I can try things that judges were never receptive to in the past, uh, and how I can try new things. Because right now, I think judges might feel that shit. I, I kind of I would look really like a caveman if I didn't consider letting this defense attorney talk to a jury about race or maybe giving the jury an innovative jury instruction or maybe allowing them uh, the defendant to show an implicit bias video at the outset of the trial or all of these things, these innovations, these things that some have been tried, some I'm trying to come up with because I figure right now is, is the time to put pressure on judges. I roll out 15 things that I think a judge could do to minimize racial bias in that case then I go into court on the record and I say, okay, number one, yes or no, you know, that judge might feel a little pressure turning me down on all 15, you know? So I, I think now's the time to try to get things we may never have gotten before. And any appellate attorney will tell you, uh, if you don't ask for it and get told no, you can't complain later. So asking and being told no still may have value. You might get a yes and be in business, or you might get a no, and then you complain if there's a conviction that you should have a new trial because the judge said no. And if I'm given just a few minutes, now I'm envisioning, you know, I I would hope judges would expand jury selection, but if they don't, and I can, because the judge is the gatekeeper, a judge could say, we're not talking about race during jury selection. And you're going to have to push and you have to explain, and you're going to have to, you know, remind the judge of the moment we're in. You have to present the judge with legal authority about the fact that they have discretion, but it is not unlimited, and talk about the social science. But if a judge gives me time, you're right. Asking each juror whether they agree with the statement, do Black Lives Matter, would be a very revealing exercise, because you're going to get, yeah, I guess, absolutely, or I think all lives matter, warning, warning, you know, or somebody might even go off and say something crazy like blue lives matter. Of course, you got to get rid of them and you might be able to get rid of them because that is strongly suggestive of implicit racial bias. So you might not even need to use up one of your precious peremptory challenges. You might be able to get them tossed for cause. So I, I think that would be a nice shortcut. That is a very telling uh, question and answer. Now, how do you feel about the the phrase Black Lives Matter? I think the answer to that is very telling. It's a real quick way to learn a lot. And what was your second point, Mary? I'm sorry. Well, just the way that courts treat different types of witnesses, right. you know, how deferential they are to police yes. officers and um, po- the police officers come in full uniform, you know, yeah. when they testify every single time. And, uh, you know, and the prosecutors go through you know, they're everything, you know, how long they've been on the force, all of these things. Not that it isn't completely relevant, you know, that I certainly can under, I certainly can, can 
entertain some relevant arguments. But there's a lot of just kind of um, uh, credibility. You know, they're they're pushing credibility based upon uh, pu- public perception versus what actually is going on in this case, and that just doesn't happen. You know, with like you know the neighbor who witnessed something. There's nothing. Uh, there's nothing to bolster their testimony, and if it conflicts with a police officer you know, that's going to be difficult, for example. Right. And what, when a police officer testifies at a trial, as you know, the judge at the end of the case gives the jury a lot of instructions. Like, how do you evaluate whether or not a witness is credible? And they tell them all the different ways you may want to try to look at credibility. And one of the things they'll tell them, in any case where a police officer testifies, is they'll say that you're not to give a police officer's testimony any more weight or any less weight just on account of their occupation. But that instruction doesn't really help the defendant, right? Because police officers, most jurors walk in holding police officers in in high esteem. And that instruction basically says you shouldn't do that. But most people are not going to have lifelong, strongly held opinions reversed by a couple of words out of some stranger judge's mouth. They're going to walk in holding police in high esteem, and they're going to deliberate holding police in high esteem. And that instruction probably is going to mean next to nothing. So if the goal of the instruction... uh, Bracketing? So yeah, in rhetoric, there's this concept of bracketing, and it's this idea of like taking like a lifelong experience or assumption, just putting brackets around it. Uh, Okay. And and the studies have shown this over and over again, how absolutely impossible it is you're asking, because it isn't just a knowledge that they hold. It's a belief about themselves or their identity or their social group. That's so hardwired into every kind of decision they make and all of the choices that they make that asking them to set that aside is like tantamount to asking them to just like cut out a part of themselves and like stick it on a shelf during the trial. So it's, yeah. it's laughable. It's almost so insufficient that I don't think a human brain can process it as anything other than boilerplate. Right. And there's like, yeah. there's social science, like you're saying, it, that supports how ineffectual an instruction saying set aside your lifelong beliefs can really be. It's, it's, it's worthless. And I think what we need to do is we need to, to argue to a judge that the fact you're giving that instruction at the end of this trial, it it doesn't, that's not doing anything. Your That instruction is not really going to counter any pro-police biases that these jurors have. And the other things you're doing in, during this trial, Judge, are exacerbating those pro-police biases, the things that Mary mentioned. You're allowing this police officer to waltz in here in full uniform. And when the police officer gets on the stand, you're like, hey, hi, officer, how are you? And are you comfortable? Do you need some water? All this just ridiculous ass kissery and over-the-top reverence. And one thing that the jurors read when judges and police officers act friendly, when a police officer settles in to testify, is what they read is they read, oh, these two are familiar, right? These two are familiar. So this police officer probably wouldn't be testifying if the judge didn't believe they were a straight shooter. So they all. So now you're enhancing their credibility by the judge falling all over themselves to to accommodate the police officer. And when a defense attorney starts beating on a police officer, catching them in a lie, you know, pitting them against the other police officer because their accounts are different, talking about how they violated the rules. When you start making headway, a prosecutor will object. To, to save the police officer. And judges are very receptive to that. J- 
judges protect police witnesses far more than they protect civilian witnesses. With civilian, the gloves are off. With a police witness, oh, well, move along, counselor. You know, sustained objections are pretty common. It's pretty, pretty gross. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's really the whole environment suggests to a jury that police witnesses, despite that weak, watered down, ineffectual instruction, are worth more. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of work that can be done and that, you know, we should be doing because, you know, as you, as we've been talking about, you know, the time the time is ripe where, you know, it may be politically necessary for prosecutors and for judges to be more amenable to think to these types of arguments when otherwise they wouldn't be. I mean, we know from history that uh, they're not really amenable to these to these uh, types of arguments without outside pressure, um, because right. we've been making a lot of them, and you know, and they certainly haven't been doing any of this work themselves. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're sort of asking defense attorneys to be even more zealous than they have been, uh, and to and to do even even more work. Um, I know they already feel overburdened, um, but to bring these these issues up. And I think, you know, if you have more attorneys asking for these um, these considerations, you know, at all levels, from plea bargaining all the way up through trial and appeal, you know, as an appellate attorney, I can't say that I'm like super encouraged that the that the appellate courts are going to uh, do anything. But that. But, you know, I would love to see an argument. I'd love to see a novel argument and be able to, you know, and be able to make that. And and I, I think, you it, you know, certainly the, the the volume, you know, 15 charges and they denied every single one, you know, I think you could make a pretty good argument. And at some point, I think it would have it would have an effect at the appellate level. So I certainly endorse, you know, making those arguments and getting denied and then, you know, and then seeing how it goes. I mean, that's how the process works. Um, but, you know, I. I just want to commend you for, you know, after all of these years and beating your head against a wall, you know, to still have the energy and the passion to try to think, okay, well, how can I revamp my practice? You know, that's something that um, I would love to see, you know, lawyers do more of um, is to, you know, continue to try to get better. Um, you know, I think part of the point of the podcast is to try to call call the profession out a little bit to work a little harder, you know, play a little less golf, um, you know, put in the work to look at the evidence, make real decisions, stop taking shortcuts because, you know, you're, you've decided to work in a profession where you're looking at people's liberty and trying, you know, and that in, in criminal convictions affect their entire lives and it also affects the safety of the community. Like these are really important things. If you don't want to, if you don't want to do the work in an important area, then find another job. You know. But if you're doing uh, yeah. it, do the work. Yeah. This is as lawyering goes. I mean, this is high stakes stuff. Uh, this is liberty, and it makes me sick when I see defense attorneys 
not doing everything they can. Now, when you start out in your career, you're not going to be able to do everything, right? But it, it, you could be eager and you can learn and you can intend to improve. But you see attorneys kind of settled in to a routine of mediocrity. And well, usually that's we're the not, they decided to run for judge. Yeah. But well, yeah. I mean, I, a All lot right, of defense attorneys get on the bench and they disappoint, right? I mean, we've seen that plenty of times. <sighs> um, yes. you know, you'll see good, right? you'll see defense attorneys get on the bench and then they'll tighten up and become conservative and become only concerned with getting reelected like all the other judges. And it's just kind of disgusting. Yeah. But it's, yeah what's, that, you know, what's that quote? Everyone's a conservative the day after the revolution. Like <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, um, I think that happens all the time. I think the the biggest for the majority of judges that, you know, are, are running uh, uh, Federalist Society, Trump appointees aside, um, I think typically, you know, they're they're just kind of regular people who have ambition um, and are want, you know, want to do well in their own career. And, and they and that that motivation, uh, you know, is pressing them more than really anything else. So to me, what makes the best judge is somebody who is compassionate, hardworking, uh, empathetic, and, you know, whatever type of liberal or conservative, it doesn't, it, it, that has not panned out that, uh, on the bench. I, I can't, I can't say that that has been a, that political party is a good predictor, uh, in my no, experience, of who's going to be a good judge. Um, nope. I do think, though, there's, the, you know, with, with what's going on in the federal courts and, you know, I can't say that we've seen it a lot in, in, in upstate New York, but in other areas, you know, there are there is dark money coming into state court races. You know, that that's a totally different animal and something that we address in the podcast. But when you're dealing with, you know, just regular people going up through through advancing their careers, um, that's not what we've seen. Um, that it just isn't a good marker. Political party really doesn't matter. No, it doesn't, uh, especially in upstate New York, you know. It's a it's a watered down version of both Democrats and Republicans, you know. So I, yeah, I judges. The number one thing that I think I appreciate in a judge is being truly apolitical. Meaning, if at some point in your decision making process about whether or not to offer a, a particular sentence, if if it ever crosses your mind. How can this affect me politically? In other words, what will the press think of this? What will the public think of this? I need to get reelected in five years because I've got two kids that, that are going to be going to college in eight years, and I need to get a second term. If this start, starts entering into your decision-making process, you're not doing your job. You're thinking about you. You're not thinking about doing the right thing. And I fear that almost, certainly not every, but almost every judge allows that to enter into their decision making. Some are not even ashamed to hint at it, that it could be politically disadvantageous. It is very normal for a judge in an election year to make worse offers to defendants and to hand out more harsh sentences. Judges claw each other's eyes out to get the high profile cases so they can sentence a high profile defendant in the months before an election. So it is absolutely disgusting. The 
political calculation that goes into decisions judges make. It is not rare. It is rampant. Right. But also, you know, we also have to look at our own, uh, you know, at every level, you know, as a, you know, as a, as a public defender, I found it emotionally difficult to deal with the high volume of, of cases and the high volume. And there was just a lot of stress True. from all of my clients. And I was, you know, I found I would be yelled at a lot all day. And that by the end of the day, I wasn't handling that really well. And it started changing me and I was less compassionate. And, and so I thought, you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't what I want to do. You know, I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm in the best frame of mind, you know, to, I don't want to be speaking this way to people. Um, you know, so I took a, so I took a step back from that and, and, and did other things, you know, and, and, and now I've come back to do assigned appeals, you know, so, you, you know, I make, you make your way around, but I think it's really important to look and say, you know, like, am I, is this the best role for me? Am I doing the best I can even for me as a person, as, you know, as an advocate? And, you know, I, I would encourage everybody to, to take hard looks at that and to make tough decisions because, you know, we, you're in an important, you're in an important arena and you owe it uh, to the system to, to hold, you know, to hold yourself accountable. All right. Well, I guess the, the last thought I'll leave you with is the first thought that I expressed, which is reforms are taking place. There's, as I see it from a criminal defense attorney's perspective, two waves about to crash on the shore, and they're already starting to crash. One is this thirst, this very strong, sustained thirst for racial justice that we're seeing. And the other is this thirst for police reform. These are two extraordinarily important, long overdue uh, items that are finally getting the attention that they need. And uh, the criminal defendants are at the intersection of, of these two things. Uh, these reforms are extraordinarily important. I hope that the, the impetus behind these reforms doesn't peter out. There's already been policing reform passed in a lot of states. Uh, we're already getting reforms based, upon, based around racial justice. But if defense attorneys are ever going to make inroads into minimizing pro-police bias and implicit racial bias in the course, in the lifetime of a criminal case, the time to get innovative, the time to push the boundaries, the time to demand more, really, it's upon us. We need to start now using the pressure that judges and police and prosecutors feel to the advantage of our clients. So it's the time is now to be creative, to try things you tried before again, and to try new things. Well, thank you, Eric, so much for your thank time you. and all of your ideas and your passion for for clients and uh, and for the system. Uh, you know, you, you may get better by being a part of it and for being an educator. And so thank you so much for taking the time to educate our listeners. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for having me. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger. Thank you.